Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me with, I believe, some incredibly exciting news, Lucy. <laughs> well, I think, yes. Hi, Alex. We think it's incredibly exciting. I have to say it's nothing exclusive to me. It's something I saw on someone's website. So I think we might have to tamp that down a bit. I've oversold it, but now you're underselling it. So let's yeah. just sell it. Okay, well, the thing is that David Austin, the Rose, the Rose King, yeah, the Rose King, yes, let's the be Rose about Emperor, it. yeah, yeah, his company, which is now run by his son, who is also an Austin, but I think not called David, they've brought out a new rose, and the rose is called Penelope Lively. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that lovely? And actually, so I've had a look at it. Of course, I have. It's a really beautiful rose. It looks like an old rose to me looks like it but it's a shrub rose I mean obviously it's new it's repeat flowering fragrances you like this fragrances medium strong old rose fruity oh we all love a fruity rose in our garden and what color pink quite a sort of mid mid pink it says and it's sort of quartered you know when they open and they're really beautiful and they're quartered in the middle yes it looks very very nice and part of the blurb about it says that it's it talks about her writing life, but also her wonderful memoir, Life in the Garden. And it says that she says the two central activities in my life alongside writing have been reading and gardening. And isn't that a wonderful thing? Have you read Life in the Garden? It's it yeah, is really it brilliant. is absolutely wonderful. And she has that idea, which I think she develops. I can't remember. What, I think I feel like it's near the end where she says that once you've started gardening at almost any level, then you start looking at things with a gardener's eye. And she says, and it's a bit like a novelist's eye and presumably maybe it's like an architect's eye or, you know, a painter's eye or any of that. But it just gives you a different perspective on the world. Well, you are aware of all the technicalities that you have to be mindful of and all the construction and the sort of underwork, as it were. But then what you're actually in pursuit of is just profusion and beauty, isn't it? Yeah. And then when you see it, you think, oh, how absolutely wonderful. And then you think, how did they do that? <laughs> Or you start working it out and it's sort of a, a way of framing, isn't it? And that's always, I always think languages do that, of course, in a, in a much bigger way. It's just a different way of thinking about the world. And I think that's always pretty valuable. Do we feel that we're going to go and order our Penelope Livelies immediately? I wish I had room. It does look really beautiful, actually. I imagine Penelope Lively is as pleased as punch I would be. Well, she could put it, although I hope she doesn't, in what I've recently read, I had less pleasant reading in a way. I saw a piece in the paper about an erotic garden to be shown at the Hampton Court Flower Show. I just thought, no. <laughs> what I'm doing in my garden at the moment is propagating softwoods. I don't want any friskiness. Well, propagating in a way. I mean, that's reproducing, isn't it? Well, it is, but I, you know, I just want five minutes to make my little lavatera cuttings and work out where they may go, and to wonder if I might, you know, get a few nice shoots off my viburnums. I don't really want to go any further than that. That's fine. I don't think it's compulsory, Alex. <laughs> I think it was supposed to. I'm not sure what it was supposed to do. I actually had a look. Because it's at Hampton Court, isn't it? Mm. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see it kind of in the list of gardens, sexy garden, come and have a look. So I don't know quite what the deal is. Well, look, listeners, there you have the settled view of the TLS podcast. Yes to Penelope Lively Roses, no to sex gardens. Well, well, Lucy you know. is less convinced, but I may put my foot down. It may become, no, we can go it's a line in the sand. You're propagating, you're reproducing in the garden. It's all going on. Anyway, 
ignore right. me. Yes. Well, there is probably going to be a little bit of garden chatter later because we're talking about Cornwall. And actually, I saw another lovely story in the paper today about I'm mentioning this because we are talking about Cornwall later in the podcast. But for those of us late bloomers, a woman from St. Austell in Cornwall called Christine McHaines has got a book deal, a five book deal for a, an amateur sleuth series on her 77th birthday. Oh, that's brilliant. So we say oh, congratulations to Christine McHayes from, from Stostel in Cornwall. We do. Yeah. Without further ado, however, before we go further into the byways of sex gardens that Lucy seems, you know, uncomfortably... Uncomfortably comfortable. Uncomfortably I'm just comfortable raising an with. objection here. Objection. <laughs> Sustained. On this week's show... A.E. Stallings on a Poet Laureate's formative years and Anne Kennedy-Smith on the joys and pains of Cornwall. But first, W.H. Auden famously wrote that poetry makes nothing happen, but he went on in the same poem to say it survives, and he repeats it in the poem, it survives, a way of happening, a mouth. And poets have been associated with power, with monarchs and rulers throughout the ages. And our version of this is the poet laureate, who no longer receives a butt of canary wine, but instead a barrel of sherry. A.E. Stallings, the recently appointed Oxford Professor of Poetry, writes about what she calls the uncomfortable relationship between poetry and power in the TLS this week. And we are delighted that she's here to talk it through with us. Alicia, many thanks for joining us. You must be very, very busy, busier than ever at the moment. And congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We're we're still absorbing the exciting news. <laughs> okay, good. And presumably it's like term time hasn't started yet, so you don't have to do anything too much yet? I've already set a topic for a poetry contest. So oh, wow. Okay. A little bit oh, more. <laughs> hit the ground running. What is it? Are you allowed to tell us what it is? I think it's been announced. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it's the John Stallworthy Prize and they needed a topic for this next year. Actually, I'm not sure I, I'm allowed to. Okay. We'll report back when we know the news is out. We'll keep it as an exciting secret. <laughs> so in this wonderful piece, you reviewed two books for us, a memoir by Andrew Motion, of course, who was an ex-poet laureate, and a history of American poetry and the state, sort of mostly in the 20th century by Amy Peth. Is it Peth? I actually don't know how you pronounce it. I'm not sure either, but I will go with Peth as well. Okay, what was it, Peth? <laughs> so let's start in the UK. Andrew Motion's book, it sort of, you say it tracks pilgrimages throughout his life, doesn't it? As he walks in the footsteps of Rupert Brooke and Auden and Larkin, to name a few of them. It starts when he's, I guess, maybe 16 or something, and he's gone with some school friends to Greece to track down the, the grave of Rupert Brooke. So the corner of a foreign field that is forever England is on the island of Skiros. And um, it's quite a deserted patch of Skiros. I have been to it. And I think they don't uh, take proper sun precautions. And basically he passes out from heat exhaustion. And this becomes this sort of epiphany also about poetry and about islands. But it's just kind of the start. He spends a lot of his youth tracking down poets and how poets lived, which I think is consistent. Just thinking back to myself as a young poet, you're kind of searching out how to be a poet and part of that, you know, meeting poets if you can and um, finding out more about their lives. Mm -hmm. And in his epiphany, because the book is called Sleeping on Islands, isn't it? And as you say, he's on the island when he has this first epiphany, possibly brought about by heat stroke <laughs> yes. by being an Englishman in the, in the, the very hot sun for a while. <laughs> but there's this lovely phrase that he sees poems as way stations and destinations at the same time. Yes, and I think that that is a lovely phrase. And I mean, even the title Sleeping on Islands, you don't immediately think this is going to be about poetry. I mean, it says later a life in poetry, but this idea of poems as separate, but kind of joined together, there's something pleasing and profound about that, I think. And he does go to other islands. He thinks of, you know, England as an island among islands. And um, so it it seems to work as a title. Mm hmm. And when he's talking about his professional life, he says that he was glad to take up the post of Poet Laureate, but actually he starts to sort of regret it, doesn't he, after being kept very busy by lots of royal events? Yes. I mean, he's the first, I think I say in the piece, I call him the first ex-Poet Laureate because 
Mm, Before that, it was a life position. So you were a poet laureate until you died. And, you know, many people, I think, regretted becoming poets laureate because you were on the hook for writing about various things. But he was poet laureate from, I think, 1999 to 2009. And there were just a lot of royal events that happened in that time. And I think, you know, although he enjoyed some of the things that he got to do in terms of the advocacy of poetry and recording poets that, you know, writing one thing after another, you know, birthdays and jubilees and so on became a little wearing. It's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously he hit this incredibly busy patch, as it were, in the schedule of things to commemorate. But also, I guess, attitudes towards the monarchy were evolving and changing. There was a kind of sense of cusp moments. And that means being that sort of interface between this institution about which there are various schools of thought about its future and the sort of representation of the celebration of it is a tricky thing for a poet to handle, I imagine. Yes, I think it is a very tricky thing. And um, the moment where things maybe tip, it's still quite famous, was Prince William's 18th birthday. And Motion wrote two poems, actually, for that event. There was an A side and a B side. I guess he's thinking about the the vinyl records of his own youth, which is possibly not something that Prince William would be on board with. You know, so the A side was this rap, which he thought of as a joke, but Motion did, but apparently other people took as just a, a bad poem, which is something like, better stand back. Here's an age attack, but the second in line is dealing with it fine. And that still comes up <laughs> in social media. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> and Motion in the book, um, to give him credit, says it was a moment of self-sabotage. But the other thing is the B side of that poem is a perfectly lovely standard uh, sonnet, which ends, your father's heir, but true to your own faith, a mother's son and silvered by her star, which is really quite lovely, but everyone seems to forget that one overshadowed by the, the rap. But he, he was, I suppose, attempting to sort of capture something about of the difference between sort of youth and age, I'm guessing. I'm trying not to think of Kendall's rap in succession now. Oh, yes. <laughs> which, which just sort of set the standard for kind of laughable raps. But I mean, that, that does, as, as you're sort of intimating, it seems a bit unfair on Andrew Motion, do you think? Yes. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me about poetry in general is how poetry is quite quick to latch on to new technology and um, new genres. Rap clearly kind of belongs in that. And the idea of A-sides and B-sides of records, fine, but poetry also fits very well in, in tweets and on phones. So there is something both very ancient, maybe this is, monarchy has maybe a similar problem with poetry. So it's both very ancient and has to find ways to come into our contemporary world as well. Hmm. And I get the impression that, as you say, he's a bit, by the time of the fabled rap, he's doesn't say he's sick of it, but he's, it's perhaps been a bit much. So he doesn't, you get the impression he doesn't complain about it or sort of chafe against his public role. He seems to be very keen on education and taking poetry into schools and things. Yes, and I think if it were not a limited role at that point where he knew it would end at, at 10 years, it would be a different thing. But I think if you kind of know, I've got two more years of this and then I'm free to do other things, that made it more more dealable with. Yeah. But then there's a sense in your piece that when he moves to the US and he finds all sorts of freedom in all sorts of ways, poetic as well. I believe so. I mean, he was um, he gets a, a call or an email out of the blue from the American poet Mary Jo Salter asking him to come to Baltimore and teach at Johns Hopkins and takes that up. And it's I think there are a lot of things that are freeing him around this time. You know, he gets, he's finished with his poet laureate gig and, you know, doesn't want to take on something else in the UK. And he has a new love in his life and his father, who is this kind of judgmental, silent figure in the background of the book, passes away. And I think that kind of gives him permission as well to, to finally pull up stakes and and try something different. 
Because mm. it's it's a memoir, isn't it? I mean, it's just a life in poetry, but it's also about his life as well as about his relationship with poetry and this public facing kind of thing as well. Yes, it's a memoir and parts of it are quite lyric. I found it tremendously fun to read. I think I read it almost in a sitting. I mean, I'm kind of an ideal reader for it because I'm really enjoying the the poetry gossip I know a lot of the people or, or I would have liked to have known a lot of the people. And it ends in this kind of really strange lyric moment where it's about the pandemic, but he's kind of remembering the difficulties of his first marriage. He married very young and their neighbors have the same names as he and his first wife, their neighbors in Baltimore. So it's this kind of it ends almost on this surreal pandemic note, but most of it reads, it really kind of reads like a novel, which is, I think, kind of the ideal way you want a memoir to to read a kind of, um, as autofiction, perhaps. This is a sort of an odd thing to say to a poet, but I guess one of the things when you think about a poet's memoir is it intersects to the, the non-poets among us with that idea of what a poet might be like, and certainly wandering between islands, finding lyrical connections and connections of the mind fits in it. In some ways, having a sort of public office doesn't. I wonder how much it's sort of playing with that idea of what a poet is. Well, I found it, one of the things I found really interesting reading it is, you know, one of the problems of being a poet is how do you make a living (laughs) being a Mm. poet? Generally, you're not mm. paid to be a poet only. So kind of watching him as he figures out academic jobs or he goes into publishing and um, or, you know, making an anthology, those kinds of, you know, publishing meetings where um, people are, I think this might be a thing of the past, but, you know, people are meeting in a pub and practically hung over by the end of the meeting and <laughs> these kinds of things. And, um, you know, There's a moment where he's in Hull and I think he runs into Philip Larkin. It's the day that Philip Larkin has finished the poem Obad and Larkin is like, I finally finished that poem that was troubling me. So yes, it is that kind of seeing poets as regular people going about their regular lives. And there is something kind of fascinating about that. Gosh, you'd imagine that Philip Larkin might need cheering up on the day he's finished writing Obad. And I mean, not because, I mean, it's wonderful you know, piece of work, but you'd think he might need a pint after that. I think there are pints, yes. <laughs> Did he quite often needed a pint, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, but I would say particularly after that one. <laughs> and if we move over to the US, then you say that Amy Peth's book investigates how it's, it's sort of post-war political forces that shaped the American poetry establishment, didn't they? Yes, and I think I I had some adumbrations of that, but maybe seeing it all kind of laid out was sort of surprising or even shocking for me, just the extent to which the current American poetic and literary landscape um, is prepared in this immediate post-war period. Just a lot of stuff is happening in 1947 and 1948. At this point, There is a consultant in poetry to um, the Library of Congress. That's the position that will eventually, in 1986, become called the Poet Laureate, more in line with the UK, I guess. But at this point, there's simply a consultant to the Library of Congress. But that kind of puts them in a very official position with the government. And it's at the same period where there's a lot of worrying about sort of culture and what is the U.S. doing in culture that will be different from what the Soviet Union is doing. The CIA is founded in, I think, 1947. Around the same time, there's this huge scandal, the Bollingen Affair, which I guess I kind of knew about, but I hadn't really seen it kind of laid out in this way. And it's the beginning of this mixture of private money, government influence, and so on. But uh, it all kind of starts with this scandal around Ezra Pound. It feels as though there's two figures almost that it revolves around maybe the story. There's Ezra Pound, who is sort of foreign-seeming and difficult in almost every sense of the word and kind of untrustworthy. And then there's Robert Frost, who is very American, seen as a patriot, close to the land, uses simpler language, that kind of thing. 
the book maybe could have even made more of these two poles. I mean, it does come through in the book. So Ezra Pound, you know, during the war had become very pro-fascist, very pro-Mussolini, was in Italy, was delivering these radio talks that were found to be, after the war, frankly, treasonous. He was arrested. He was kept imprisoned outside of Pisa in Italy for six months by Allied forces. And here he composed a lot of his most famous poems, the Peace and Cantos. But friends of his kind of helped him not go to prison or you, something worse could have happened for treason. And instead, it's seen that he is not fit to stand trial. He's basically has an insanity defense, although whether he's actually insane, I think, is is, is not clear. Um, and instead is incarcerated in St. Elizabeth's Mental Hospital in the U.S., so there's this new prize in 1948, the Bollingen Prize, Bollingen named after the Swiss town, I think that Carl Jung had lived in. And the, the private Paul Mellon Foundation puts up a thousand dollar prize, which I guess in 1948 is, is quite a lot of money. Um, I haven't looked up how much money, but I think it's it's a lot. But it's to be administered by the Library of Congress, which is obviously a, a federal institution. And, you know, unfortunately, it's for the best book of poems published that year, and it's 1948, and, you know, that's when The Peace and Cantos comes out, and it's mm. clearly a very important book. Everyone agrees that it's very important. I forget what other books are in the running. There are some other books that you would have heard of in the running that year, but, you know, and so I think 10 out of the 12 fellows of the Library of Congress, who are all very big name poets, want to give it to Pound because it's the best book. And then there are a couple of people who are not sure that that is the right course of action because he's in a hospital for treason. He's a fascist. And he's, and a fascist, then, yes. and he's yeah, actually exactly. written these yeah. poems while under arrest for treason. And, um, and it's a federal prize. And it's also a time where new critics are talking about, you know, the only thing that's important is on the page. You can't take people's biography into account and so on. There's this kind of art for art's sake. And those people win out and he wins the prize. But the fallout of this, I mean, it's in the newspapers. It sounds almost like a current culture war thing. People are writing and just appalled that a U.S. government prize is going to someone who's basically in a hospital for treason. So uh, the fallout of this I think is something apparently we're kind of still going through to this day. So um, the Library of Congress washes its hands of having to deal with any prizes. Um, the Bollingen Prize is sort of up for grabs. I think Poetry Magazine out of Chicago wants to handle it. But since their editor, Hayden Carruth, had voted for pounds, you know, he's kicked out of Poetry Magazine. And it ends up going to Yale, from which it is still administered out of Yale. And so that's also a shift of American poetry, the power within American poetry shifting to academia. Frost, you wouldn't necessarily think of Frost in the same or speak of Frost in the same breadth as Ezra Pound. They seem so far apart, but they're quite closely entwined. Robert Frost had no luck getting his poetry appreciated or published in the U.S. I think he's almost in his 40s when he he goes to the UK, one of these American poets, you might think of T.S. Eliot and, and various other people who decide you, know, you have to go to London or you have to go to the UK to be truly appreciated or to be taken seriously as a poet. And there he's discovered by Ezra Pound, who I think kind of oppresses Frost with his discovery. He writes a condescending review of Frost for Poetry Magazine, where he calls him the untutored child of American letters. Frost, very did not take kindly to that and um, was sort of furious. And um, that actually made Frost realize he really wanted to be an American poet. He wanted none of this nonsense of being in Europe and um, returns to the U.S. through Ellis Island and kind of reinvents himself as this, you know, Yankee poet. I mean, he's not born in New England. He's, I think, born in California. His middle name, I think, is Lee, Robert Lee, like Robert E. Lee Frost. But he comes back to the States and he's determined to be this sort of Yankee New England stuff. 
But strangely, he is one of the figures who is instrumental later in getting Ezra Pound out of the mental hospital. So they seem oddly entangled, if I if I may put it in that way. This sounds a very fascinating account to read in conjunction with, I'm, I'm thinking of Matthew Hollis's book, The Biography of a Wasteland, which is yeah. so much about Ezra Pound and obviously a lot about the decades before that, when he was in Europe, when he was this incredible almost impresario figure. He was this sort of midwife to so many other poets, as well as this extreme, I mean, he was extremely prolific himself, wasn't he? So it, it's a terribly tragic story as well as anything else. It, it is a tragic story. And I know in that book, Ezra Pound, I, he comes across as such a force of nature and badly playing the bassoon and, you know, having wrestling matches with Ernest Hemingway and sort of larger than life generally. I think there's a movie to be made perhaps about Ezra Pound. And, you know, Frost is kind of this figure in his own way, but he becomes this national poetry figure. And I guess I hadn't realized how much he was really actively involved in all of this. He really believed when he was the consultant to the Library of Congress, he wanted the president to consult him on things. You know, he wanted Congress to call him up and say, you know, what should we do about, you know, Moscow? <laughs> so he really... Gosh, and did they? No. <laughs> well, I think he did have some... Inter... He became the first inaugural poet. There was not a poet at the inauguration um, before Kennedy's inauguration where Frost shows up. And I think Frost had written a 72-line poem the night before for the inauguration. But on the day of the inauguration, um, which was in January, it was a snowy day with bright, bright, bright sunshine, and he couldn't read from the page. So he pivoted and he recited this poem of his, The Gift Outright, which is, I think for us today, cringe-inducing because it's all about how the American land is completely empty and just waiting for its colonizers. Oh. Oops. It's, you know, it's a well-written yeah. poem. It's, uh, you know, a well-executed poem, but I think for us now would be a highly problematic poem. And, you know, Frost still kind of has this problematic relationship to a lot of things. I mean, he went he went to the Soviet Union and met with Khrushchev. And it's startling to think now of a poet thinking they could go talk to foreign leaders and influence policy. Mm, yeah, it shows a certain, I don't know what the word is, a certain level of, maybe it's just confidence to go, do you know what, I'll just write 72 lines the night before and then, <laughs> and then on the day to go, oh, no, I won't do that, I'll do something else. Oh, <laughs> no, I, I just can't, it's like the worst essay crisis. Alicia, please tell us you're not going to do anything like that. You don't strike me as that kind of person. <laughs> okay, now it's like you're a terrible, <laughs> terrible stress dream, isn't it? Now you're warning me. I think one of the things that comes across with Frost is he's just got this enormous ego, as does Pound, and um, can be tremendously prickly. He's always convinced that he has enemies. You know, but he, he eventually he wins this prize and he buys a farm in New Hampshire. And that's to show how American he is. He's like so American that he's rural, you know, so he buys this farm yeah. and that becomes part of his, you know, American identity. That kind of idea of the real America is out in the countryside or in the boondocks or north of Boston, you know, but not in any of the urban centers. Mm. And there also seems to come along, I mean, not necessarily with him specifically, but if you sort of take on the idea that he then becomes the American poet and kind of, you know, person of the land, good, simple countryman, there also comes along this sort of idea, doesn't it, that poetry is a civic good and it should be accessible to everybody. All Americans should be, you know, have a poem to learn by heart and the idea that it should be not easy, but, you know, as I say, certainly not too difficult to grasp. Yes. And I think, I mean, as a poet myself, I'm very conflicted over this idea. I think, you know, there's this idea that poetry somehow needs to be accessible. I think there's been a, a to-do in the in the UK about this recently. But, you know, I'm not sure what that means. I think to a certain extent that can be very condescending to the audience and is a kind of elitism of its own kind. But yes, I mean, American Poets Laureate have tended to be activist in recent years and that tends to mean bringing poetry to the people in some way, in some ways that are very good, 
but I think, you know, there should also be room for, for difficult and arcane poetry and poetry that doesn't speak to everyone. I think, you know, we can have both things, but generally mm. projects and so on tend to focus on the idea of bringing poetry to more people. There's always this idea, I think, that poetry is somehow in retreat or under assault. I guess I don't buy into that myself. I think, you know, poetry will be around when we are all gone, certainly, and when, you know, 80% of the species on this planet are gone, poetry will be chugging oh. along fine. So I guess I don't worry about it, but it's it's certainly a theme in American letters. And, you know, as, and again, this comes out of this post-war period where poetry kind of migrated from, you know, this idea of you had to go to London and you had to meet Ezra Pound into academia, where in some ways you're in a more controlled situation and into the classroom, you have this idea suddenly of creative writing programs, of sitting around and workshopping. I mean, even that word workshopping, I think Robert Frost would kind of approve of it. It sounds like you're sitting there with your hands and you're you're hammering things together, which I think is it's not an unpleasant way to think about making a poem, but, you know, the domination of the creative writing workshop, sometimes in collaboration in some ways with the government sort of began to dominate U.S. poetry. And I think it is that way to this day. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine Ezra Pound workshopping, can you really? <laughs> well, I think he, could, <laughs> he would workshop your poem. Certainly, he would take your poem and say, you know, take this out and this out. But I, the idea Yes, yes, I see what you mean. Many people would sit around the table and also give their opinions. I think Ezra Pound would not have approved of that at all. No, maybe not. It's completely fascinating and it's just a wonderful light that you can shed on it from your various perspectives. So, Alicia, thank you so much for guiding us through these complex and fascinating waters. Thank you. Thank you for having me. to come on the show. Well, we've heard about Andrew Motion's wanderings, and next up, we tag along on a walk through Cornwall. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free, wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. It's summertime and those UK dwellers not destined for foreign shores might well find themselves taking a trip to Cornwall to enjoy its pasties and clotted cream, its dramatic landscapes, its flora and fauna and tourist attractions such as the Eden Project and the Lost Gardens of Heligan. But this westernmost peninsula has not found that tourist popularity has translated into greater prosperity, at least not for everyone with house prices running at nine times the average salary, traditional industries such as tin and copper mining and fishing either obsolete or in decline. Two books about Cornwall, Tim Hannigan's The Granite Kingdom and Luke Thompson's anthology Treasures of Cornwall, make clear these very different faces of Britain's Celtic kingdom. And Anne Kennedy-Smith has reviewed them in this week's TLS. She joins us now. Welcome, Anne. Hello, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. 
Well, thank you for writing this review and for joining us to talk about it. But I must say, from a reviewer's point of view, it sounds like a tricky task because these books really do sound like chalk and cheese. <laughs> they do. Well, just to give you a quick outline, Tim Hannigan's book, The Granite Kingdom, is quite a compendious book. It's not one you would easily fit into your knapsack, but that's exactly what he did. He's originally from Cornwall, but he's lived in different places in the world, including Indonesia and written about history and, and various things. But he moved back to Cornwall in his adult life and has his family there. And he decided that he wanted to write about Cornwall, but he wanted to explore it much as a visitor would do, but not the sort of visitor who comes in a coach or a, by train. He, he would go on foot. He would cross the Tamar River and walk from the eastern edge of Cornwall right to the west of Penwith, the furthest west it's called. That's where he was brought up. And so he wanted to find different parts of Cornwall that perhaps he hadn't been, perhaps he knew less about. So his book interweaves his own family life, his knowledge of the geology, the geography, the, and various histories and modern things such as the more recent adoption, revival of the Cornish language. And you say there's a, even a sort of hint of the kind of George Orwell project about it, the road to Wigan Pier. It's got that sort of feel about it. Yes, I did think so, because he describes at different points his uh, knapsack getting completely drenched and he just packs up and, and carries on and uh, he sleeps on the beach. He sleeps in a cradle of granite at one point, he says. So he doesn't mind hardship, but we do bear in mind it was only for three weeks and it was in the summer. And you get the impression that he'd rather have been doing that than actually joining the crowds at the seaside, because apart from anything else, he gets to be on his own. He gets time to think. And interspersed through the book, we see him. He describes how he meets other people wandering along. And it's just quite a nice touch because usually there are people who live there, people who are walking like him. And he says he can't help feeling pleased when he's recognised as a Cornish man. And that's a, a thing about his identity that he's questioning all the time. What does it mean to be Cornish? What do we mean nowadays? And how how the Cornish people were seen really by other English people over the centuries. Yeah, he's really interesting about this idea of the Cornish identity. And you start with a sort of rather derogatory tracy of the Cornish by Daniel Defoe, don't you? I mean, Cornish people have not been treated well is the thing that we take away. Yes, well, it's it's surprising, really, when you think how how many people enjoy going to Cornwall and always have over many years. But to begin with, it was seen English people who went there saw themselves as kind of intrepid adventurers um, to a very remote area. And uh, Daniel Defoe decided that he wanted to get as far as Land's End and look at the the scenery there. But he stopped on the way. He watched a Cornish hurling match, which apparently is played without sticks, and it's quite a a rough and tumble sport. And he says that uh, it was a rude, violent play among the Boers or country people, he writes, brutish and furious, and a sort of evidence that they were once a kind of barbarians. So you get this thread through a lot of books. So that was in 1724, but right the way through the 18th century and into the 19th century, English sort of pseudo-scientists came down to Cornwall and describe people as looking markedly different to other English people and sort of took calipers and measured skulls and things like that and to try to sort of assert the fact that they were Celtic people, that they were almost a different race from the rest of England. So it was quite a, you can imagine the Cornish people having mixed views of these visitors who came down and sort of looked at them like specimens. For, you <laughs> for can, study. you think, oh, I wonder why they don't like me. I wonder why they don't always like the English tourists. I'm really interested, yes, Anne, quite. as well in, in the idea of, of the language as part of, of the identity, because I was reading that until, like while it was still spoken, people who spoke Cornish and people who spoke Breton from Brittany could basically understand each other. Yes, I believe so, yes. And presumably that's because the geographic sort of um, proximity and the fact that people could travel by boats and and people did travel by boats much more, obviously, than we're used to and, and cross between countries. And Tim Han Hannigan makes a good point that he says that when we look at a map, we kind of look at it from one direction, sort of from above and, and see Cornwall as part of England. But if you look at it from the sort of promontories of, of Ireland and Cornwall and Brittany, they're all sort of pointing towards each other. So they've got a separate area of connection, really. 
And in Brittany today, there, there's still evidence in some of the place names. There's a place called Cournoy. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that, even though I speak French. And Dom, Domonet, which was the old area name for the area, Demonia, which took in Cornwall and Devon. So there are a lot of links between that. And of course, the revival of the two languages, the Cornish and the Breton, has been a feature of the 20th century and perhaps increasingly so in the 21st century, I think. It's true that, I mean, Lucy, you're there in London and and I think you're in Cambridge, aren't you? Yes, that's right. I'm a lot closer to Cornwall than either of you sitting here in the the southeast of Ireland near Ross Lair. I could could probably Uh, get to, if I could skipper my own boat, I guess I could get to, to Cornwall quite easily. And I was completely enchanted by the mention of hurling, although it is played with sticks here, as you know. But it nonetheless still feels, I mean, it doesn't feel truthfully very Irish to me, not perhaps as much as Wales or Scotland do in some ways. Um, It does feel like a place unto itself. And I think from the sense I'm getting is that's how it feels to the Cornish as well. Yes, and, and I think up until, you know, relatively recent times, the 1870s, it really was a place to itself. There was this river, there still is the River Tamar, and English visitors like Wilkie Collins made a, a great fuss of how intrepid they were to have crossed it. I mean, you think it sounds a bit like the Amazon River or something. It was a big adventure to even get across the river. And then in 1854, I think it was, the um, Prince Albert Bridge was built by Isabard Brunel, And after that, the railway came, and that was really the beginning of tourists coming to Cornwall. But before then, it was very cut off. So people didn't come into Cornwall much, but also people didn't go out of Cornwall much. Or if they did, with the demise of the tin and copper mining, they went to Australia and America in search of work. So it wasn't very securely attached to England in that sense of coming and going, really. And how does Tim Hannigan deal with the arguments for and against Cornish devolution? Because obviously these are movements that have waxed and waned and there are different parties representing the fight for Cornish independence. But, you know, it's something that is incredibly knotty. And of course, as we, you know, as I mentioned, this is an area with real problems with poverty and with housing, with all the kind of deprivation that goes with a lower GDP. What are his feelings about it? Well, I would say that it's quite, he takes quite a measured approach. He weighs up the different arguments for and against. And that's the point where anger does break through his book when he, he talks about the lack of housing, affordable housing for people and just any housing, because, you know, it has to be said, there are a lot of holiday homes there, second homes there, and there aren't enough uh, houses for people who work there to live in. And he says at one point there are something like 5 million visitors a year. But what about the half million of us who live here year round? And it's also a generational thing. And he said he was lucky enough to have been able to live in his parents' sort of adapted shed in the garden sort of thing. And other friends of his have done that. But that not everybody has parents that can build a house in the garden or have a kind of a legal um, foothold in the place. So... But he doesn't, that anger doesn't translate into him automatically saying that Cornwall should devolve or have its own language or have complete separation. And I think his book draws together the threads of connection between Cornwall and England, which are much more subtle underlying people. And most people there, he says that that sort of racist question that people say, but where are you really from? And he's very proud to say he's from Cornwall, but he realises it's a, it's a complicated Providence, because part of his ancestry is Irish, part of it is from different places. So it's not, there isn't a sort of pure Cornish stock, as it were. And thinking about his family, his father was a fisherman, wasn't he? And he he writes a lot about the decline of the fishing industries and of the pilchard industry, for example. Mm. Yes, and that's very much informs the book. And I, I can't help feeling that it some points that also informs his attitude towards the painters who settled in places like St Ives and Newlyn in the north of Cornwall, which were former fishing villages and communities. And he says, well, how come artists have colonies and it's as if only colonies of incomers can be creative enough to, to pass as uh, geniuses for Cornwall. But 
he feels anger at demise of the fishing trade, but he doesn't suggest that it's automatically there are any solutions to that. There's just a change in Cornwall's history. But I think that's why he travels to the clay country. So the clay country was the part of Cornwall around St. Austell that was famous for porcelain and exported to China. It's porcelain in the 17th and 18th century, and it's still manufacturing porcelain today. So that's a sort of a, a like a sort of balance to the, the lack of fishing trade, but there are still other industries. And as we know recently, the government has going to be good news about lithium mining in Cornwall, bringing a lot of jobs to that area around St. Austell. I must say, I feel part of the problem here because I really, really enjoyed going to see Barbara Hepworth's sculpture garden in St. Ives. And, you know, it is a marvellous place and they are beautiful places to visit. But the question is whether we, the visitors, are really helping. I mean, presumably there are sites where tourism is really bringing a lot of money in, but that is just not being distributed. Yes, I think that's right. And I think the fact that uh, Tim Hadigan's book draws attention to the fact that a lot of the tourism is centred in just a handful of places like Padstow, St Ives, Newlyn, and not exploring the rest of Cornwall, perhaps that's something that could be rectified. So a lot of money is going into a very small area and those places are losing their identity as actual places for Cornish people to live in, in, in a more you know, community-based way, really. One of the things that strikes me is, you know, when you have a peninsula, the north and the south are completely different, aren't they, in terms of their topography and their geology and the way that the landscape has developed. And presumably that also gives rise to kind of different regions within a region. Yes, very much so. And I think the fact of when D.H. Lawrence went there during the First World War, he liked the fact that where he was felt very remote. We wouldn't think of it as so remote today because it was five miles from St. Ives, the farmhouse where he lived with Frida for, for two years. But he loved the associations with the, the Celtic history, the, the Druids, the ancient burial mounds and the men here's around there. So it felt very different to him. It felt very foreign. And yet we know that down the road nowadays, it's a, it's a thriving tourist capital I love that element that you drew out about D.H. Lawrence was that he he thought Cornwall was full of informers. Informers to what? I mean, I, I was completely intrigued by that. Who did you think was informing <laughs> to whom about what? Francis Wilson uh, wrote a very good biography of a, a very sort of circular biography of D.H. Lawrence called Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And she said it's interesting because when he moved there with Frida, his German wife, he had sort of been expelled from London because his book The Rainbow had been banned and they had to leave and when they moved there naturally among the people they didn't have many incomers having holiday cottages there at the time 1915 particularly not in wartime and so they were a suspicious couple they were he was very friendly to local people apparently to begin with anyway but certain things were reported back to the authorities and um, in the end Things like uh, painting and painting the walls that was seen as a sign to the Germans, having a candle in an upstairs bedroom. And it was a risk. They were very um, hot on uh, coastal, protecting the coastal areas from invading ships. But a lot of the things were just simply the local people expressing a bit of scepticism and uh, suspicion about him. He thought that they were all informing the authorities about him, which they were a bit. They were a bit, yes. And in the end, he was actually expelled, uh, as he puts it, with pitchforks from Cornwall, he and his wife. (laughs) But before that, he had thought it would be an idyll. And he invited his friends, uh, John Murray and Catherine Mansfield, to come and stay with them because they were were in a cottage and there were other cottages uh, nearby. And they thought they would have a sort of an alternative artists and writers community there. But they said that John Murray wrote back to uh, Lady Ottoline Morell and said, the heights are always bothering here with, with D.H. Lawrence around because he loses his temper so easily and he's a sort of Heathcliff, Heathcliff full of rage. And, and you can see how he did feel rage, that he didn't feel accepted by the community, even though he certainly identified with the landscape and wanted to recreate a, a sort of 
idyllic artist community there. It just unfortunately didn't work out for him. I can kind of see their point in a way. I mean, when you're actually living somewhere and somebody comes and inserts themselves and says, well, don't worry, I'm going to turn this into a completely different kind of community. You might be yes. a bit sniffy about it. You might even reach, I suppose, for your pitchfork, although, you oh, know, indeed. presumably there are better ways <laughs> of dealing with blow-ins. But yeah. it's really interesting, that idea of this harking back to a past. And that really comes out, it seems to me, when you're talking about Luke Thompson's anthology, Treasures of Cornwall, I mean, even even the sort of title and you, you, you mentioned it, it seems kind of rooted in the past. I mean, you say that there's there's nothing that isn't over 70 years old featured in it. And I, I wonder why that is. Does he say why when he's making his selection? Well, I <laughs> I can't help thinking it might have something to do with copyrights. That if the oh, yes, yes. If they've all just been dead for a number of years, it's free to put, put the, such a book together. And it's it's a very light um in the sense of lightly packaged book there isn't a lot of information in terms of index or background information about the writers involved but I think it really is meant to be something that you would take with you on a holiday and dip into on the beach and you will definitely find somebody there who you haven't heard about before I mean I was pleased to dis to discover that the Victorian writer Dinah Craig had also done one of these um tours to Cornwall and she calls it an unsentimental journey through Cornwall and it's actually a lovely book with uh, hand-drawn illustrations and so on and also she she takes a very um sanguine approach she doesn't insult her hosts or, or Cornish people she just sort of takes things in her stride and she describes going for a walk and she says as the only possible place for a walk I ventured into a field where two or three cows cropped their supper of damp grass round one of those green hillocks seen in every Cornish pasture field a manure heap planted with cabbages, which grow there with a luxuriance that turns ugliness into positive beauty. So she too was seeing beauty in very sort of ordinary farming life and not looking for evidence as some English visitors like Defoe did, looking for evidence that the Cornish weren't quite civilised. She was actually looking at their ability to live off the land and live in a very simple way which in the way that we would find attractive today really i was about to say that seems to be actually a brilliant idea to grow your cabbages but they were amazing cabbages and that's a very clever thing to do i bet they were <laughs> see there we are lucy we've got another idea for our gardening there i don't have two or three cows sadly but if i did <laughs> that's what yes. i would do <laughs> It's much like, you know, this southeast part of Ireland. I mean, it's just excellent dairy territory, isn't it? Because there's a lot of rain, so you get a lot of grass. So it's not particularly arable suited, but it is very, very nice. Hence the clotted cream, of course. But this idea of going into those kind of traditional things, I was very interested to hear. I mean, it's always interesting in anthologies. You tend towards the person you've never heard of. And I'd never heard of Jack Clemo either who wrote poetry about the mining industry, about clay mining, didn't he? Mm. Yes, there's a very powerful poem of his in this uh, Luke Thompson collection called The the Excavator. And it's almost an expression of Jack Clemo going to church, but his church is the local mine, the great machines associated with its local mine in St. Austell. And the, the poem begins, I stand here musing in the rain, the Sabbath evening where the pit head stain of bushes is uprooted, strewn in wagon tracks and puddles. And, and the poem sort of continues in this slightly dark vein of, of worshipping, but it's a sort of worshipping of his own environment, of the reality of it, of embracing that. And in a way, Jack Clemo is very interesting because he took issue with, he said when he was young, he used to strew Cornish words around his poems, and then he decided, no, that's just a sort of middle-class affectation of a sort of romanticising of Cornwall that he was against. So he wanted to show the real Cornwall in his poetry. And he was actually, he was the son of a, a clay worker near St. Austell. And um, his father died when he was young. And uh, very sadly, he was born with syphilis. He had inherited syphilis, congenital syphilis. And so he spent the majority of his life deaf and blind and had other physical weaknesses. But he never stopped writing. He, he always... Uh, 
very much stood up for what he saw as the real Cornwall of, of the clay country and how people lived. And at one point he took issue with, um, of all people, Daphne du Maurier. And there was a sort of newspaper spat where Jack Clemmel had written something uh, very dark and, and very brutal about Cornwall, but with huge respect and huge love for it. And Daphne du Maurier wrote into the paper and said, well, we don't really want to read this sort of thing. That's not the Cornwall we want to see. <laughs> and he very much um, stood up for himself and didn't let himself be cowed by people like du Maurier, who loved Cornwall, of course, and as well. But it was just a very different approach to it. Yes, she loved she loved her Cornwall and the Cornwall of her imagination, I suppose. And of course, that has been enormously attractive to people who were kind of, you know, the first thing you'd go and see in Foy and Menabilly is is Daphne du Maurier's house, isn't it? And you'd be aware of the settings that she used for her writing. And of course, this romanticizing is always attractive and does come through in lots of writers. And I, I think we have to talk about Poldark. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Do we? I, w- I wondered if we were going to get through without talking We have about to talk Poldark. about pirates and we have to talk about Poldark because, of course, this has dominated so much of the popular literature that's had its roots in this idea of Cornwall, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's interesting that that began. I mean, that's a very 20th century series, isn't it? It, it began in 1945, Winston Graham was writing. And his his novel was so successful that he uh, he kept on adding to it. But I mean, he he has some nice things in his the, the extract in uh, Luke Thompson's anthology has an extract from the the first novel, which is called Ross Poldark. And that's it's actually a very interesting scene to read because it's about the pilchard fishing, and they had this amazing system of catching pilchard, which was to sort of surround the bo- boats to surround them and throw this huge net out. And then all move at one point and then the, the fish are all caught within this, this enclosed and they all have to work together, the fishermen, to do this. But he does have a, a funny description about this in, in the moonlight. And this is actually sort of Ross and uh, Demelza's sort of fall in love with each other as they're gazing at this sight of the pilchard fishing. So it's, you know, it's a different way of doing a, a romantic scene, I suppose. <laughs> it all comes back to pilchards. It does, yes. And once again, I feel rather rather implicated in this. I don't know about you two, but I mean, pilchards on toast was an absolutely standard lunch or, or supper when I was a kid. And I, I can't really remember the last time I had a pilchard. I feel kind of almost personally responsible for the demise of the pilchard industry. It's true. It's true. What what has happened to it? And where does a where do we get our pilchards these days? I don't well, know. <laughs> you know, listeners, please write in and tell us if you, if you know. I suppose it sounds very much that that you might tuck this anthology into your pocket if you were venturing to Cornwall to have that nice feeling of consonance between your your reading life and your holiday life. But you might not want to take Tim Hannigan's book, but you probably should. Well, I I do think Tim Hannigan's book, The Granite Kingdom, is is really very enjoyable to read, full of information. But but you know the way he writes, he writes very clearly and it moves along. So one minute you're you're hearing about pilchards, and the next minute you're hearing about uh, Daphne du Maurier, and so it, it there's there's never a dull moment really. But I think it is the sort of book that it's probably better to read before you go or when you come back. <laughs> And preferably before you go, because then you it's much more interesting to go there with that knowledge in mind of how different a place is, how it varies, not just in the in the geology and the geography of it, but from from place to place and the different histories associated with with the the whole area, really. And I love the fact that he brings out the fact that when the railways came to Cornwall, 1870s was also the Victorians, it's almost as if they flooded in because they've got so much interest from hearing about these penny dreadful stories that were sold cheaply at railway stations and so on from the 1840s. And a lot of the stories were about Cornish wreckers. And these are these amazing stories about um, that local people would walk along cliff tops, swinging lanterns and luring ships as if it was a safe harbour when it wasn't, and they lure the ships onto the rocks. And then they went down, and if anybody survived, they they murdered them and took their valuables and this sort of thing. And Tim Hannigan is very good at just taking you through these different stories and all the evidence. And then he says there is absolutely no evidence 
whatsoever that anybody did anything like that. And he puts it in the modern day context that when he was young, if things were washed up on the beach, they made use of them. They repurposed them. They found old um, packing crates and turned them into a garden shed, for example. And, you know, the, but there wasn't any murdering and um, stealing of things going on. It was just if you found some flotsam, you used it in a, in a eco-sensible way. It was more whiskey galore than the Jamaica Inn then. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> But it's just a funny thing about Cornwall that people want to and, you know, there wouldn't have been any point saying, well, actually, there's no truth in this because that would have ruined a good story because they just wanted to believe that this was the, the slightly mysterious Celtic people were going around um, having a different moral code and stealing from from ships, and, and which, you know, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Well, with or without pirates, well, without pirates, as we're hearing, I mean, it still sounds like a really interesting book to read and take in mind as if you are going to Cornwall and even, of course, if you're not. And thank you so much for coming to talk to us about these two books and, and shedding a bit of light on a part of the kingdom that still does seem shrouded in a certain amount of mystery. It's been lovely to explore it with you, Alex and Lucy. Thank you for having me. have time for this week. Our thanks go to A.E. Storlings and Anne Kennedy-Smith. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, Alex Clark, goodbye. <laughs>